Okay, you can turn over in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're talking about the path to glory, which is suffering, and we talked about suffering last week, and I want to cover the second half of that message, uh, the aspect of our glory that will come one day, uh, today. And um, so if you missed last week, you have to listen to that message first, and then you can listen to this one, and it makes sense. Because <laughs> there's no glory without suffering. Amen? That's what the Bible says clearly um, throughout the pages of Scripture. Every Christian, I think, lives in <clears throat> the hope of that glory to come. Uh, last week, we mentioned 1 John 3, 2, uh, where John writes, <clears throat> When Christ shall appear, we shall be like him. What a glorious day that will be. For we shall see him as he is. Uh, the theme of Romans chapter 8, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, is really the hope of that glory to come. Uh, and it really speaks to so many different things uh, that we've, we've talked about. Uh, last week we mentioned that there's no salvation without glorification. You can't be saved... <clears throat> And have that process not complete itself in glorification. Because that's the goal of our salvation. The goal of our salvation is that we would one day stand in the presence of God. Glorified. Perfect in every way. Um, Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident, Paul writes of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Even in our our. Romans chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's interesting that before you were even saved, God planned to save you. Before you were ever even born, God planned to save you. He planned to conform you to the image of his Son. And that's why in verse 30 it can say, Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's interesting to us, when we look at that verse, we can actually say, you know what, we're not totally... Glorified, yet we still have this body of sin that we're dealing with. We're still here on this earth. But what's interesting is that God transcends time. And God sees things as they truly are. And to God, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, He completes that work. Glorification basically means complete deliverance from sin. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that complete in every sense. And that only will occur when we enter into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and we are made like him. Um, And so glorification really completes our salvation. When you look at salvation from our side of the timeline, as human beings, it's a process. God saved us here and it's he continues that process of sanctification in our lives each and every day through the power of the Spirit, through the power of His Word, through the power of the church. And He makes us more and more into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But from God's perspective, we're already saved. 
we're glorified. We're, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so there's no such thing as salvation without glorification. Now last week, just real quick, as far as a review here, we saw that the path of glorification was through suffering. And we talked a little bit about the, the problem of suffering. And we said that Paul's being just real here, and that's why he brought up the aspect of suffering in this wonderful chapter. And he brought it up also for the very simple reason that a lot of people deal with suffering in a wrong way, in a unbelieving way, in a fleshly way. And those three uh, ways we listed last week, anger, avoidance, and apathy. Um, when people are faced with suffering in this world, if they don't know Christ, usually, and even sometimes if they do know Christ, one of these will pop up. And we, we looked at the idea that suffering is really a proof of who we are in Christ, that is a proof of our sonship. And it shows us that proof through things like persecution, through things like per, uh, purification. God uses the imagery of someone who's working with metal and refining it in Zechariah 13.9. And it pictures God as a skilled refiner heating that, that raw ore until its dross has been, um, uh, rises to the surface and scooped off and he can see his face clearly in the reflection. That's when he knows it's done. In the same way, God purifies us each and every day of our life until he can see the face of Jesus Christ in his people. So there's a purification process and there's also training, the aspect of, of training. Paul says that we need to endure hardship like any good soldier. He uses terminology that has to deal with um, uh, athletes. He says, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. And so we talked about those things last week. We also talked about the power of Christian witness. We mentioned that, you know what, when we suffer as Christian, Christians, it can really be used as, um, God can use that as a means of evangelism in the lives of others. Um, that somehow our witness for Christ is empowered when we go through suffering. And it gives us a certain cloud of witnesses, you might say. Um, I was reading a story of a, a young Chinese pastor. He was in prison back in 1960. He, was, he wasn't released till 1979 for his faith. And when he was released, he discovered that during that 19-year period, his parish had grown. His congregation had grown from 300 people to 5,000 professing Christians. And today, the same community has grown to over 20,000 people. In 1982, there's a story of this Christian community in central China. And what they did is they dispatched a missionary team in response to kind of a Macedonian-type call for help from another area in their country. And in a month of intense work, they had established several new churches in this area. But then most of their senior pastors were arrested. They were in prison for four years. However, their arrests forced the younger pastors and the younger people in the congregation to take over leadership positions in the churches. And as a result, not only were the home churches cared for, but the mission expanded and the growth in that area was phenomenal. People 
were persuaded to believe on Christ by the quality and the duration of their leader's suffering. One 14-year-old girl understood this. She was one of the nine young evangelists who were arrested by local police and forced to remain kneeling in one place night and day. 14 years old. On the third day of this torture, she fainted, passed out, and they released her. The others were made to suffer the same continuing torment for nine days and eight nights. Eventually, they too were released. And when they were all reunited, the 14-year-old girl began to cry. And they said, why are you crying? And she replied that she was crying because they had been called on to suffer for nine days while she had only been called on to suffer for three. 14 years old. See, she understood that the point of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ She understood what that meant. And she counted it not as a burden, but as a privilege. If there's one thing that we are going to have to understand in the coming years here in this country, is that the world is not going to look kindly on those who profess and live for Jesus Christ. They don't already. If you're here today and you're saying that you're a Christian and you're saying, well, gee, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, don't, I don't see any problems. You know, I'm out there every day. Nobody persecutes me for my faith. Then you might want to look at the kind of faith you have. Um, you know, the church in China is growing tremendously and it is growing because of the suffering they're going under and in other parts of the world as well. Um, See, some of us as Christians only want the good life. We only want the happy in Jesus kind of stuff. We don't want the godliness necessarily that comes through suffering, that comes through persecutions. Many of our own 14-year-olds think that they're suffering if they can't turn on their personal TV or their laptop. Well, we looked at last week as well, the path to glory. And one thing that we understood was that it comes through suffering. And I want to read for us this morning, verses 17 and 18 of Romans 8. It says, And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. We said last week that the path to glory is paved with suffering. And there's a couple things you need to remember about suffering. First of all, it's necessary. And secondly, it's not the end for the the Christian. There's a glory that comes through suffering. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. And so what is Paul saying here in these couple verses? He's saying to persevere in any present sufferings with hope, you have to keep your eyes on the future glory that God has promised. To persevere in present sufferings in this world with hope, you have to keep your eyes on future glory that God has promised you. So today, I want to speak to you of 
about the incomparable gain of glory. The incomparable gain of glory. And it's just that. It's incomparable. You can't compare it to anything. Paul introduced the theme of of glorification by linking it with the prior passage dealing with adoption. And that's why there in verse 17 he says, And if children, that's kind of a poor rendering, it should, and since children, then heirs. Um, That word if can be translated since as well. And there's no expression of doubt here in Paul's words in the original language. It's a first-class condition in the original Greek text, which means it's something that affirms the reality of a statement. He's not saying, if you're a child. No, he's saying, since you're a child, you're an heir. There's no doubt. Since we are children of God, we are also heirs of God. Galatians 3.26 specifies exactly who the children of God are. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. See, don't buy the lie today that's out there in liberal churches. Oh, we're all, we're all children of God. No, we're not. Jesus made it very clear that, you know what? Some are children of God and some are children of the devil, right? I mean, he made it very clear and by the way, he was speaking to religious leaders of his day when he, he made those comments, which I'm sure ticked them off. There's nothing that will tick a self-righteous person off more than questioning their righteousness. So if you put your faith in Christ, you are a son of God, but you're also an heir. And it's impossible to be, impossible to be a son of God and not be an heir. It's just impossible. It doesn't work that way. You will receive what God has promised to you as heirs of God and joint heirs, the Bible says, with Christ. Well, let's look at the first thing here, the heirs of glory. The heirs of glory. Uh, James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? See, this is something that God has personally promised to us. This isn't something we just make up. You know, it's not like you're telling some big story about some rich uncle that's going to leave you multiple billions of dollars and the uncle doesn't exist. Colossians 1.20 says that the Father has made Christians fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. That inheritance that we will receive is for sure. It's not in any question. When you were saved, you were made an heir of God. God is faithful. The Bible says he never disinherits anyone. You know, we probably all heard stories or maybe even experienced where you were in someone's will and maybe something happened and they're, I'm going to take you out of the will. God never does that. Philippians 1.6 says that Paul says that he's confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Will perform it. He will do it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a sure thing. There's no question there. See, there's an assurance that if you have been saved, you will be glorified. You will receive glory. You will receive your inheritance from God. You could say, well, can a Christian lose his inheritance? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And anyone who would tell you different is not reading the pages of Scripture. Well, what if you reject God? 
You can reject God all day long. If you're legitimately saved, God's not going to reject you. See, we were saved because God chose us, not because we chose him. The Bible is very clear about that. And so if that's the truth, if you doubt me, read the book of Ephesians or Peter or any of those books. It'll tell you very clearly that is the truth. How can we undo something we didn't have anything to do with? Especially when you're talking about undoing something that God has done. I mean, you ever go outside and look around and see what God has done? Look at the creation. Look at all the beauty that he has created for us to enjoy. With the mere words of his mouth, he said, let there be this, and there was. I mean, that's power. I mean, you go down and you go over to the coast on a, on a, on a blustery day, and you see those waves coming in. That's power. That's nothing compared to the power of God. Or you feel an earthquake tremble, and boy, you know, wow, that was, that's nothing in comparison to the power of God. And you're going to say that somehow you can overturn the power of God by your will? Galatians 4, 7, Paul says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please know that the idea that you are, have that heir of glory coming is, is, is secure. It's secure in Christ. It's not, secure, it's not security based upon how you perform as a Christian. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that that's the case. I'm glad that God didn't one day back in history save Steve Converse and say, okay, now all you got to do is live the right way until I come back. If you do that, then we're good to go. But if you mess up, you're in trouble. There'd be no hope. I thank God I can go to bed at night, rest my head on my pillow, knowing that if this heart should stop beating, I'll be in the presence of God. It doesn't matter what kind of day I had. It doesn't even matter what kind of week I had. It doesn't matter how obedient I was to God that week or not. It's not based on my performance. It's based on God's promise. Now, that doesn't give us the right to go out and live however we want. You know, we don't just sit back in the armchairs of grace and say, oh, God chose us. We can't ever lose it, so let's just go live it up in the world. No. You're just exposing yourself as an unbeliever if that's your desire. Because the Bible says very clearly, either you love God or you love the world. You can't love both. So you're an heir of glory. Secondly, you look at the source of this glory. In verse 17, it says that we're also heirs of God. God is the source of this glory that we will inherit. And we receive it directly from him through Christ. Um, Colossians chapter 3 verse 24 says this, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. God gives us his inheritance. And he gives it at his own sovereign discretion. Matthew 25, verse 34, it says, One day the king will say this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Did you know that God is preparing this kingdom as an inheritance even before the creation of this world? He was preparing it. And because he never changes, we can be sure that he will keep his word. Now, some of us may be heirs to people who don't have much to give. (laughs) But you know what? As heirs of God, we will possess more than we can ever even imagine. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but what? But thee. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, 24 wrote this. The Lord is my portion. See, that's really the mature perspective on our inheritance. In the midst of all that God possesses, Everything that God possesses will be ours one day. But the most treasured possession of all those things, hear me, is God himself. God himself. Revelation 21. Turn over there with me. Revelation chapter 21. This speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. This just kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit (laughs) to give you a glimpse of what's coming. John writes, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Tell that to your tree-hugging friends. This earth isn't even going to be around. It's going to be gone. And yet we're so worried about sustaining it. Verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came out, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me 
away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel like jasper clear as crystal it had a great high wall and 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed and on the east three gates on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Notice it says 12 apostles. So when you run into somebody who calls themselves an apostle today, you might want to question them on that. Verse 15, And the one who spoke... With me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth christophaz, the eleventh jacinth. The twelfth, Amiath. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Wow. It's a big, big oyster, man. And the city of, the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing, look at that, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Just to give you a little precursor to what we have to look forward to. And all that comes from God. The best part of our inheritance is God himself. Well, to what extent does this glory go to? He says there in verse 17 of Romans 8 that we are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. See, it's very important to understand that we receive an inheritance as extensive as the one that Christ will inherit. That's amazing. Everything will be brought into subjection to Christ. That's what the Bible says. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, what? With all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And then down in verse 10, he says, we'll gather all together 
in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. See, ultimately, everything belongs to Christ. And that is the extent of our inheritance. It's equal. Since Christ is heir of all things, we are both joint heirs with him, and we are also heir of all things. And that's strictly an act of grace, because Christ has the right to his inheritance. But you know what? We don't. We don't have a right to it in and of ourselves. We receive it only through him, through our salvation in Christ. And that's why in verse 17 of Romans 8, it says that we will be glorified together with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? He became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus prayed in John seventeen five, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That same glory one day we will know. We will receive that same glory. Please understand, we won't be equal with Christ in terms of deity. We won't be God but we will be equal to him in every other sense, and we will inherit all that he possesses. That one day in glory, you're not going to find, one commentator wrote, you're not going to find no trespassing or forbidden signs. Everything's fair game because it's all going to be ours. Jesus prayed in John 17, that the glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. That includes us as well as his disciples. See, we ought to think a little more about our future inheritance. I mean, it's so easy to become bogged down in, in the, the pressures of this world and, and day-to-day financial mess and everything that's going on in our own lives. Sometimes we forget what awaits us in glory. And that's why Paul had to tell the church there at Colossae in in chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on what? On things that are above, not on things in the earth. You set your mind on things of the earth, guess what? One day they're going to be gone. They're going to be burnt up. But you set your mind on things that are above. Well, it's going to be an equal inheritance. We're all going to have that. And then it also says it, it is endowed The greatness of our inheritance is beyond human comprehension. I mean, you just read through Revelation chapter 21. I can't even understand half that stuff. I can't even imagine being in the presence of that. Well, how do we receive it? We receive it by grace. Turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Lest you think, oh, one day I'm going to get this because I'm good or I'm this or I'm that. No. Titus chapter 3 sets us very straight. Why we receive what we will receive. We receive it by grace, not by good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 to 7. It says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration 
and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become, look at what it says, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We didn't do anything to deserve that. From the very start, we weren't children of God. We were children of the devil. First John tells us that. We had to be adopted to become heirs. And God adopted us by his sovereign will. Verse 7 says that we are justified by his grace and his grace alone. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 says Christ died so that they who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It's a promise. It's as sure as any other promise from God. And then thirdly, it's eternal. <clears throat> Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at what verses 4 and 5 says. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Everything on earth, I don't know if you realize this, everything on earth will grow old. Everything on earth becomes defiled. Everything on earth fades away. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything is kind of winding itself down. Just the way it is. You can't buy a brand new car and park it in your garage for 40 years and come back and expect it to be better than it was 40 years ago. Not going to happen. This body is not going to be the same as it was 40 years ago. Not going to happen. You can take all the pills, you can go all, do all the workout, you can do whatever you want. It's just not going to happen. You're going to look older. You're going to feel older. You, why? Because your body's breaking down. Now, we don't like to admit that. So we do all kinds of things. I remember uh, hearing uh, uh, James, or, uh, uh, Vernon McGee, and, and somebody asked him a question, is it... Is it wrong for a woman to wear makeup? And he said, basically, look, you know, if you need it, pile it on. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> if you feel you need it, pile it on. I thought, wow, that kind of puts him in a precarious situation. <laughs> but you know what? We do all kinds of things to try to maintain our youth and... And, and, you know, basically everything is winding down. 
Everything is becoming older. We who are saved don't need to work at staying saved. We're kept by God's power. Isn't that a wonderful truth? We'll receive that inheritance that was promised to us even before the world began. And that should cause us true joy. Uh, That should cause us a willingness to focus on things above and not on things here on the earth. So it's an eternal glory. Well, we also see the proof of this glory in verse 17. And we talked about this last week, so we're just going to skim over this. First of all, the fact of suffering. He says, since we are children of God, we are heirs of God. Um, It's very clear that whether it's severe persecution or simple persecution, it's very, very easy to see that the world does not have a place in their heart for the things of God. It rebels against God's authority. It rebels against God's word. It rebels against God's truth. It doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So when you go out as a Christian and you're trying to share the truth of God with people, they're not going to you know, wrap their arms around you and give you a, a big fat kiss saying, well, thank you so much for sharing this truth with me. That I'm a sinner. That I'm unrighteous. That there's no hope outside of Christ. You do that, what's going to happen? You're going to experience the same hate that Christ experienced. You're going to experience the same rejection that Christ experienced. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul says this. It's a faithful saying, for, we, for if we be dead with Christ, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And once again, I think a proper translation would say, since we suffer. Because if you're living a faithful life for Christ out in this hostile world, you're going to experience that hostility. John fifteen eighteen, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So don't run from persecution, beloved. Don't run and try to compromise the gospel into something that it's not. That's the problem with most Christians and most churches today is they, make, they want to make the gospel unoffensive. They want to dumb it down to some simple little feelings and make everybody feel good. So we can just get together in a big circle and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and hopefully God will understand. No, he won't. He will not. He will judge that mentality one day. See, there's a lot of of people even within the church, I believe, that are unwilling to pay the price for their faith. So they're careful with their words. They're careful with the truth, even though they know it to be true. I don't know about you, but when I go to a doctor, maybe you've had tests done and you're sitting there. And I remember when I had that cancer in my shoulder, the doctor 
basically said, well, come on in. We need to talk. And I said, well, what do we need to talk about? Just tell me what the results are. Well, we'd rather have you here. It's like, oh, great. Okay, whatever. So I go in there. But it was pretty matter of fact. Here's what you have. Here's what it is. And I appreciate that. You know, it irritated me if the guy would have went on for 20 minutes trying to, you know, prepare me for the truth that I, that I needed to hear. See, a lost and dying world needs to hear the gospel. And they need to hear it in a bold way. We don't need to dumb it down. We don't need to, you know, kind of take it and make it all nice and cushy and cozy and comfortable. I talked to one pastor one time who was telling me that in their church they don't sing hymns anymore. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, you know, it kind of makes people feel uncomfortable when you start talking about, you know, the blood of Christ or someone who's a wretch or, you know. And I said, well, who are you trying to, who are you concerned about? I mean, are people in your own church uncomfortable? Well, yeah, they've, they've expressed that. They, I said, well, maybe they need to hear the truth. Maybe they need to be a little uncomfortable. But see, we, we live in a day and age where, what? Tolerance, 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 right? Truth is all relative. So when you speak the word of truth in the public arena today, what happens? Wow, the, the wheels come off the cart. They come out of the woodwork to attack you, thinking that somehow you, you know, you're, you're speaking some blasphemous thing. So we have to understand that it's a, it's a, a fact. The result of suffering basically is the more you suffer, the more you're going to grow. That's very clear. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What's that saying? The more you grow, the more you suffer, the more you grow. That's why God allows suffering in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 18, Paul says very clearly there in verse 8 to 10, he says, we are inflicted, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. I mean, Paul and his companions lived at death's door. He continues in verses 11 and 12 of 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What's he saying? This was the cost in spreading the gospel. There's a cost in reaching out with the gospel. See, and we've got things mixed up. We think that somehow we, we can isolate our life on Sunday from the rest of our life the rest of the week. So we come here on Sunday and we bring our Bibles and we sit under the teaching of God's word and we feel all warm and fuzzy. And then we go out in the world and we forget what he's called us to do. To infect the darkness with the light. To infect falsehood with the truth. There's a cost in spreading the gospel. Are you going to ruffle feathers? Definitely. Count on it. 
Paul and his companions suffered so that others might benefit. Look at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so do not lose heart. We don't lose heart, he says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you believe that? See, those who suffer for Christ receive an inward dose of divine strength. He continues in verse 17 there. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison or comprehension. What's he saying? The more you suffer now, the greater you will have a capacity to understand the glory in the life to come. We're called upon to suffer because God does a work through that. He says in verse 18 there, 2 Corinthians 4, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're here and gone tomorrow. But the things that are unseen are eternal. See, I think we we need to really step back from our daily planners and our iPads and our iPhones and all our scheduling tasks and everything and really honestly assess what are our priorities? What are our priorities in life? Are they based on things that are transient? Are they based on things that are one day not going to be around or are they based on things that are eternal? You know, we change our perspective all the time in life. You know, your, your, your perspective changed big time when you find that special person that God has gifted you to be with for the rest of your life and you're married. You know, you can't have the same perspective as a married person as you did as a single person. Doesn't work. Trust me, I've tried it. I remember right after I was married, Thanksgiving rolled around and I told Ambika and Crystal, I said, well, we're going to go on a drive on Thanksgiving Day. And where are we going? Well, go out to I-5 there and look for a family maybe that needs something to eat. Who are they? Well, I don't know. You're not taking my daughter and I'm not going with you. And you're not going either. <laughs> what, are you nuts? Why would you do such a thing? You're putting yourself in harm's way. You know, all of a sudden the perspective changed. Remember driving when I was single from San Diego to Park City, Utah, on my way back to Pennsylvania, and got to Utah and talked to my brother and said, well, I'll probably just spend the night here. Well, overnight it snowed about 20 inches. I thought, wow, I skied here before. This would be cool. I don't have nothing waiting for me in Pennsylvania other than a Thanksgiving dinner. So I called my brother back and said, I'm going to wait here for a week. See what happens. I told God, you know what? I'll give you a week. Next Monday, if I don't have a job and a place to live, I'm out of here. Got to meet pastor locally. Wednesday, I went to their, their church, little storefront, Southern Baptist Church there, kind of a startup church. And... Uh, that night, after the little prayer meeting, Bible study they had, he invited me out for breakfast the next morning. He said, well, we'll just meet the Holiday Inn here. I said, oh, that's fine. He goes, uh, where are you staying? I said, oh, I, I got a place. 
Okay. So the next morning, I made sure I got to the holiday in a good 20 minutes, 30 minutes before my thing, went in the bathroom, cleaned all up because I was sleeping in my car. Got all cleaned up for our breakfast meeting. Went in, met, met the pastor, and bought me breakfast, which was very gracious. And he said, where'd you say you were staying? I said, oh, I got a place. <laughs> Finally, he looks at me and he goes, you know what? I, I don't think you do. I said, no, no, really, I do. I said, it's called my car. So you've been sleeping in your car for four days. I said, yeah. I can kind of tell. He goes, you need to uh, uh, go visit these folks out here at Park West, and they oversee that whole condominium complex. And you know what? It's too early. They don't have any tourists there yet, and they'll put you up. I said, oh, no, no, I'm fine. No, no, you're going to do this. You need to do this before you come to church Sunday morning. Trust me, you need to get a shower. You know? So then I kind of figured out what he was saying, right? So I thought, okay, okay. So I went out there and met this dear older couple. And uh, you know what? Uh, God provided not only a ministry there in this little church, but a time as a single person. I, I worked at a restaurant there, and, and God provided that job and a place to live by the next Monday. And I was able to spend till May there. This was November, the beginning of November. Met wonderful people in the Lord. I could have done that if I was single. I mean, this is not something you would do, you know, as a single person with a, a, a daughter. And I mean, you know, so your perspectives change is my point. And see, sometimes when we're going through, going through suffering, all right, we need to have the proper perspective. We need to stop and say, wait a minute. Is this just a mistake that this is happening? No, this is happening by God's divine hand. If you're his child, trust me, if you're going through any suffering... Don't think God's blinked or looked the other way and fell asleep at the wheel or something. It's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, he knows exactly what's going on in your life. And he's allowing it to happen for a purpose. And so we need to what? Practice faith. We need to kind of trust God for what he's going to do in our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, he says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, beloved, the thing I need you to understand is our suffering one day will pay off. It will pay off in glory when Christ returns. And there's also a consolation in suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul says this, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. See, the degree to which you suffer is the degree to which Christ brings peace to your heart. There's no need to fear anything. I mean, some people, I think, are afraid to suffer for Christ because they think that somehow they won't be able to handle it. People wonder, wonder how sometimes you deal with certain criticisms that you hear when you stand up for biblical truth. You 
You know, it comes down to basically fearing God more than man. I'd rather say what needs to be said and get persecuted for it than not stand firm for Christ. When we stand firm for Christ, that light of affliction that we, that we deal with sometimes from people confirms that I'll have a, a greater capacity to understand the glory for the Lord in the future. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that he longed for the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He longed for it. Galatians 6.17, he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. To the Colossians, he wrote in, in 1.24, I fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. He considered a privilege, beloved, to bear the blows of the one that he was called to suffer for. I mean, when we suffer for Christ in this sin-cursed, sin-stained, Christ-hating world, that's something that's normal. That's not something that should be abnormal. I think that the church has just been so silent and silenced in the day and age we live in as long as you be quiet about things, then you don't cause a ruckus, then it's okay. You go believe whatever you want. But when you start preaching the gospel, you start preaching the truth of God to people's hearts. Wow, it starts convicting. But how will they hear the truth if we don't tell them? So he says in verse 17, they're back to Romans 8, that, hey, you know what? He suffered. We're going to suffer. He's glorified. So we will be glorified with him. There's no health and wealth, peace and prosperity doctrine in Christianity, at least the Christianity of Christ. It's not there. That's something that man has come up with to line their pockets with your money. And Christians who avoid conflict with the world, they really limit their potential by reflecting, for reflecting the glory to come in all eternity. You know, we don't have to limit our stand for Christ. Don't believe that lie. The last thing here, the comparison of glory, verse 18. Look at what he says. For I consider, I consider, that word, it, it has the idea of calculating. It has the idea of, of, a, of a numerical calculation going on. It's in the present tense middle voice. And what that means, it's a continual action for one's benefit. It's something that goes on continuously. You don't just consider it when you get saved. No, this is a continual consideration that Paul is doing. And if he's continuing to consider, what is he considering? The sufferings of this present time. And what does that tell me? That these sufferings don't stop. There's not a certain point in your Christian maturity where you rise to a certain level and you don't have to deal with any suffering anymore. That's, that's not true. The apostle Paul dealt with suffering from beginning to end. And what he says is, you know what? These present sufferings, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Not even, they don't even hold a match to it. We need to stop cowering in the face of persecution. We need to start thinking biblically about suffering so that we will grow through it rather than be destroyed by it. 
That word he uses there, consider, logizomai, it, it, it means to basically calculate something. We get the word logic from us. So when you stop and you, you think of, of somebody who is just making a rational decision and you get frustrated, you look at them and go, you know, where's their logic? Where's their common sense? Can't they see this is right? Well, apply that when you're going through suffering. Can't you understand that this is going to happen? We shouldn't be shaking our fist at God. We shouldn't be angry at God. We shouldn't be saying, why is this happening to me, God? No. We should be saying, hey, thank God it is. Because you know what? It's confirming your work in my life and in my, in, in, in my, uh, in my life every day. How did Paul endure all this? He endured it by faith. He endured it by faith. Well, quickly, four thoughts on suffering and glory here in the end. First of all, our present sufferings are relatively short compared to our eternal sharing in the glory of God. Do you know the eternal sharing in the glory of God is not a, you know, a week-long venture? <laughs> it's not a couple months. It's not a couple years. It's for all eternity. And yet, our life down here on this earth is like a, a mere vapor. You know, it seems the older you get, it's like the faster time goes. I mean, I remember when I was little, my, one of my oldest brothers had his 40th birthday. And I thought, wow, he's really old. Man, he's really old. And now I'm thinking, wow, what happened to 40? Where'd it go? You know, it's, what happened? And you begin to realize, you know what? This life is just clicking by. You know, it's, it's interesting. They had the, the baby shower for Jesse yesterday. And, and I'm thinking, you know what? Ten years. We're going to have a little guy running around the church. And we're going to say, remember that day we had that baby shower? And it's going to go like that. It's just going to fly by. And so these present sufferings are, are relatively short. Secondly, the weight of our present trials is like a feather on the scale, which can't compare with the tons of gold of the glory that will be revealed to us one day. I mean, that is so, so true. And so he says, don't lose heart. Even though we're in this world that's dying and filled with sin and our outer body is decaying, trust that our inner man is being renewed day by day. That that light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond our comparison. And then third, the third thing to think about, to endure present temporary suffering for the future glory, is that our future glory with God is absolutely certain. See, this isn't something that's held in question. You know, what we read in, in, in Revelation 21 is not some fancy fairy tale that, well, I guess, if, no, that's reality. That's what God's word says. God has promised it. God cannot lie or he, he is not God. God promised to return in power and glory to bring final redemption to his people and to judge his enemies. And he will do that. He is absolutely certain, beloved, about our future. And therefore, we should be absolutely certain about our future. And if we're absolutely certain about our future, and our future has nothing to do with this world in which we live, it should help us to reevaluate our priorities. What is going to last into all eternity? God's people and God's word. 
Where do they fit in your weekly schedule? The fourth thing is that God is using these sufferings to conform us to the image of his son. I mean, not even torture, martyrdom, nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. And any suffering in this world is, is just absolutely trivial compared to what's coming down the road for us. And I, I pray that as believers, that you are edified in, in your hope as you look forward to what God has in store for us. Because you know what? There's no hope outside of Christ. I mean, trust me, I've been with many people who've lost loved ones. And it's always a blessing to be with someone who knows Christ. It's always a blessing to be with someone who knows that that departed loved one knew Christ. And we can say with utmost certainty, they're in the presence of God. But I've been with many, many mothers who stood by their little baby lifeless body because they don't know Christ there's no hope for them in their thinking and when I share with them what the Bible says about you know what I think God has a grace on these little babies and I think that somehow God works it out to where they're chosen before the foundation of the world because he knew when they were going to die he knew everything about them And I think they're in his presence. And when you share that, you just see their their grief and their burden. I mean, it's still there, but it takes on a different different look. And then you're able to share with them, you know what, you can know that same hope that one day you can be reunited in glory. If you too trust in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for what awaits us. Lord, all these things are only because of what Christ has done for us. And what he continues to do in us and through us. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here today who has yet to put their faith, their trust, their hope in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, that today might be the day where they cry out to you. Lord, I know there's no hope outside of Christ. Please forgive me of my sin. I trust in Christ. I believe that he lived here, that he died a perfect sacrifice, that he was buried on the third day, that he rose from the grave. And because he did that, he can take away my sin, that he can forgive it. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Change me. Transform me. Make me the person that you desire me and created me to be. That's a prayer that God will answer today. And for us believers, Lord, I pray that we would have an extra stride in our step as we leave this building today, that we would know that, you know what? Yeah, it's a a hostile world out there. But that gives us even more reason to double down and to be even bolder for the cause of Christ. Not rude, but bolder. To speak truth. To not shy away from what the Bible says. Because it's not just some relative truth. It is the only truth. 
and we trust that you will enable us to do so. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.